This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. There's so much magic in what we do that I could believe with all of my heart that this is right, but I could very well be wrong, which is why the testing process that we do where we put the movie in front of 200 people and get other opinions is really meaningful. You have to you humble yourself to the audience. They matter most. So if they end up watching it and they totally prove you're not wrong, accept that because you're, the point is to make it better. Hi, I'm Chantal Nongvo. I am an executive vice president at DC Studios at uh, Warner Brothers Discovery. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of Thank you so much for coming on. I got to meet uh, both of your parents uh, recently, and I was so intrigued. I was like, I wonder how Chantal grew up, you know, because uh, having two parents as a, a as doctors or people in the medical, wouldn't they have pressured you into be, uh, taking up their path? Oh, it's such a complicated question. Um, so honestly, yes and no. I would say my parents were quite open and supportive of my sisters and my interests. I think that, cause my sister is also not a physician. Um, and I think that what was, they did, they did push me to try to go into medicine, but I think it was more so because there wasn't like a clear alternative. Like for example, when I was interested in prior, prior I was when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I was, thinking about finance. I was thinking about business. I, before I went into film, I was thinking about international business or diplomacy. I don't think they were pushing medicine on me then. Like the times that I felt that they were pushing medicine was when there was no clear alternative. So entering college, for example, I didn't really know what I wanted to major in. It wasn't really clear what the path is for what I wanted to do, which was international business or diplomacy. And, you know, they felt like maybe I should get my pre-med requirements. Like, why not? You know, just, just because like have it in your back pocket. Right. I told them I wanted to go into film. Um, I think it was hard for them because they don't understand it. You know, parents always want to guide you. They want to help you. They want to feel like when they are guiding and help you, they're giving you good advice. Right. And so they didn't know anything about this business. And so, um, when I tried to explain to them, I actually showed them, uh, project Greenlight, which is a documentary series that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon did a long time ago that shows you how a movie is made. And my parents watched it and my mom made a very uh, astute observation. The first of which was they swear a lot. I don't know if that's like, I don't know if you got that or if you're gonna be good at that or if that makes sense, but like technically it's not good, but they swear a lot, which was an amazing observation. And the second piece was that there's a very low percentage of success. 
like it felt like a 2% chance of success and therefore a high chance of failure. So for them, they were, they were pushing medicine always as a, as a backup because it felt safe. It felt like I was capable and smart enough to do it. Um, and every parent wants to be in the 97% chance of success, which generally is what happens with, if not hundred percent, if you're doing medicine versus the, the opposite. And so, um, so they were always like, oh, you can do your PG year, right? One year, because in, in college, I didn't end up getting pre-med uh, requisites because I wasn't good at it and I wasn't passionate about it, which they understood. But once I graduated and still wasn't on like solid footing in, from their perspective, they pushed the PG year because you can get all your pre-med requirements in a year and still apply to medical school. And I explained, my mom was like, you just, you just need to have a B plan. And I said to my mom, in a business where the percentage success is a 2%, 1%, might be even smaller, I'm not even sure. If I have a B plan, I'm already going to fail. It will take all of me to try to be in that upper percentage. Uh, and so she understood that. I don't think it made them feel you know, less anxious, but I think they were always, to answer your question, they would have loved for me to be a doctor. If I always say, if I hadn't done this, I would have been a doctor because I have such a profound respect uh, for what they do and what they know. And I loved how passionate my mother was about her work and my father, how passionate he was about giving great care and teaching. Um, but there was something that I loved, you know, more. There are few uh, people at your level in the Vietnamese community. The post at DC film studios is a, is a huge thing um, for, for all of us. Um, when I think about your trajectory, uh, we'll go back into why were you even interested in film and how did you even end up at DC? Were you a big comic book lover? How does this all happen? To answer the film part, uh, I actually did not, my parents were pretty strict. We got to watch like, I love Lucy, the Cosby show and weirdly murder she wrote on Sunday evenings. Um, and then we watched Disney movies. And I think the first movie I went to in the theater was big, but it wasn't that frequent of a thing. And, and it's not something I got to do when I was younger. Interestingly, my dad is actually a big film fan. He watched a lot of movies back home in Vietnam. Um, but, you know, I wasn't at 10 year olds watching the guns of Navarone, you know, like, so I didn't, I would not say I grew up avidly watching film. I have always been a lover of the arts. So ever since I can remember, I was really into um, studying the impressionists. I always loved architecture. I'm really interested in product design. I love just the aesthetic um, and I would read about it, but I always knew that I wasn't an artist. Like I always admired it from being very young. And so long story short in college, I did an internship. I was pursuing diplomacy and international business. And what I learned is that with diplomacy in like in every career, you have to pay your dues. What you have to do to be a diplomat as far as paying your dues, I was like very clear. I don't love it enough to do that. Right. Um, and then uh, which literally was, I think, spreading the ashes of expats in Belgium for two years was what one of my professors uh, described. And then so I, I did an internship in Paris 
to pursue international business. And what I learned was that I loved the international element. I've always been a lover of the languages. My parents speak Vietnamese and French and Spanish. My dad speaks uh, Mandarin and Cantonese. And um, so I loved being abroad, but I didn't love the business. I was quite bored by it. It was like, how do you find new markets for portable keyboards? And so in college, I looked for where does art meet business? And so one of it was one, one thing was intellectual property law. I knew pretty early that I was not going to be a, a law school type person. Um, somebody, I, I read about fashion law, uh, where as the partner to a designer, you can really manage the business so that the designer can focus on designing. That was really interesting. Um, but uh, I ended up falling in love with theater. Um, my my where I went to college is has a very big theater community and somebody suggested that I try producing plays um, on campus where they give you money to um, produce, you know, plays for three thousand dollars and they're written and directed and starred in by uh, college students. And so I and no one wants to produce right at that age when you're 19, 20, no one wants to produce. So I decided to try producing and I found so much joy in taking the three thousand dollars that the school gave me and stretching it to the wow. equivalent of ten thousand dollars, let's say. Right. Yeah. And I was really passionate about what stage are we going to use? How am I going to get the best costume designer, like on campus, like I hired an architect student to design our sets. None of these people are designing sets now or designing costumes now, but I really felt strongly about making the play the best that I could. And what I discovered was that the more I did my job, the more the director could just focus on their job, which is the creative. And by extension, I was therefore influencing the quality of the art through my skill set. So I loved that I could do that because I do know deep down I have a I have an eye for things that are that uh, artistic things, but I know that it's, it doesn't kind of come from within me. It's not my calling, right? So I loved that I could influence it in that way, and and especially at the college level, no one wants to produce. It was that much more value that there was somebody who was passionate about that. So I pursued theater for 35 seconds because I quickly found talking to some friends whose parents uh, produced theater in New York and Chicago that it was pretty much the uh, people who already had a lot of money, like they had trust funds, they were married to someone wealthy, they were wealthy themselves, they could therefore produce plays or put money in, into the plays and become theater producers and those who didn't have that were not uh, or essentially impoverished <laughs> working in theater in New York City and I was like I do not love this enough to live with no money and so a, uh, a film producer came and gave a talk at my school and described what they did and I said oh it's just like theater producing but there's an industry you can start here and work your way up and you can actually get paid, right? Even if you started as an assistant. So as a rising senior, I went and interned in Los Angeles for James Cameron um, and learned everything I could about the film business and totally fell in love with it at that point. Where, so that's kind of how I got into film. Yeah. Where did you go to school? I went to Yale. Okay. So yeah. you were you were in the, the East Coast 
thinking yes. about work out here. Uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was Yale is very has an incredible drama school. Is just an incredible school all around, but very much specializes in in the humanities. Um, and the arts programs at great architecture school, et cetera. So I think I've always had a love for the arts. Sometimes my mom, you know, jokes like what would have happened if you'd gone to UCLA? <laughs> like maybe you would have been a doctor. That's definitely been said. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, yeah, I was on the East Coast. And at that time, they didn't really know what to do with me. Like Yale knows what to do with like pre-law, pre-med, you know, finance, um, but somebody who wanted to go to entertainment, there were very few people who you could lean on. They, they gave me a, what's called the Hollywood creative directory, which is like a phone book of production companies. And I faxed my resume myself to a bunch of different places and, and only got one response back from James Cameron's company, actually. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. I mean, for an yeah. internship, you only got one. Yes. And that 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 did it right. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was every, it was everything. everything. I still know people who I met there. Um, they taught me everything. They taught me how to read scripts. They told me what Variety and the Hollywood Reporter were. I learned what assistants do. I knew what the hierarchy was. So I learned everything that summer. And from that point on, I was like, this is what I want to do. It was pretty you know, clear. I, I sit with uh, so many people who talk about these very minute lucky instances because if you think about it, like what happened if you didn't get that uh internship at james cameron right yeah uh, what what would your life be like um it would would you have gone and figured something else out or would you have kept applying yeah knowing me <laughs> i would have kept applying but it would have been a harder thing because that summer is what showed me, I knew nothing about, I don't have any relatives, family. I know nobody in this industry. A lot of people in this industry know somebody, right. a neighbor, a family member, et cetera. So it would have been hard because I would have been trying to figure out how to break in after graduating, um, which is hard to go get an internship after you graduated. That's much harder to do. Um, I think I would have still tried, but I honestly don't, I don't know what it would have, what it would have uh, been actually. I think it would have been pretty hard. I mean, what, what ended up happening was um, probably similar to what would have happened in, in the scenario that you're laying out, which was that I, I moved to New York where a lot of my friends were and, um, and I got internships, but I worked side jobs to pay for them. And, um, that's a, you know, it's a harder way to live after graduating. There's, there's yeah. something more forgiving about it when you're in college doing internships. Um, so I, I think I would have kept going, but it certainly would have been harder. You, you needed to, that is where I got bitten by the bug and you're right at a different company. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten bitten by the same yeah. bug, right? Different people. Um, obviously James Cameron is who he is. So Yeah. And I'm guessing just uh, based on talking to you for the last few minutes that you uh, you possess a, a very strong intellect and very strong will. However, when we as uh, Vietnamese or minorities are in Hollywood and being a female, can, yeah. 
talk a little bit about if there was any challenge, because maybe there wasn't a challenge for you, but could you talk about perhaps if there was from James Cameron to where you are now, mm -hmm. what the trajectory was like? What, what, what was that journey like for you? James Cameron and his whole company were amazing. First of all, I'm going to say that very clearly. Um, I will say on the journey, it's been very hard. Uh, I think for, and, and this is why I really try to be active in mentoring other Asian um, executives coming up. I think what, what I discovered was that generally in Hollywood, what is valued is speaking up, being borderline boastful, if not very clearly boastful about what you've accomplished, either earning or being very clear about the credit you've earned or taking credit, right? And that's just not how I was raised. And it's not really in our culture. I don't want to speak for every Asian country, but I would say across the board, we're a very respectful uh, group of people. Um, it's not about speaking up. It's not really about drawing a ton of attention to yourself. These are that, and that will work against you in many ways in this industry. So um, there's some people, and I've noticed um, that the Asian executives I've met who are come from communities where there are many other Asians, Garden Grove, Orange County, Diamond Bar, they are actually, I found much more confident and have a much stronger sense of self and do very well, I would say. I think the ones like myself, I grew up in Redlands, California, which is predominantly a white conservative town, at least when I was growing up, a small conservative town. And I was at one or two, there were like one or two other Asians in my class, right? That's a different experience and we carry different things. And I think we take that to Hollywood. And I would notice, oh, wait, you seem to be doing okay. And I started to see the pattern that growing up in an Asian community where I think you're more supported and empowered in who you are is different from like, you know, some of the shame-based existences yeah. that we, That's those of us who grew up in the Midwest yeah. or in smaller towns, you know, have. So Hollywood it is, is less good for people like that. So what I learned, um, through a lot of thought, reflection, and frankly, therapy, is when I started to get into bigger, tougher places where more was asked of me. And, and what became clear was my value and what it's interesting when people supportive tell you, we need to know who you are. Um, you need to speak up. It doesn't matter if you're here, if your, your voice isn't heard right? These are people who want to help you. Right. But just because they say that to you doesn't mean you can just wake up tomorrow and be like, all right, this is what I think, yeah. right? So so it took a lot of to know who I was, own the projects and the tastes that I had, which often is not the same as the executive next to me, right? You often have to advocate for your own projects and you are defined by the projects that you um, advocate for. A lot of that is just saying, is instead of saying like, oh, I think they want me to buy this. Or I think this would succeed because that's what I think they want. What do I believe? What do I want? What am I going to advocate for? And how am I going to make that fit in the model? That took years wow. to cultivate. And it's all internal, emotional ther therapy work. And what are, where I landed was 
there were a couple things that I did that were active. I've told some friends this that like before staff meetings, I would practice in front of a mirror or even just practice to myself. Exactly. What am I saying? This was actually advice given to me by somebody who wasn't Asian, but these rooms are very daunting. Even if you're not a minority, they're still daunting. So then you, we have an extra layer, yeah. right? And then we have the stereotype that's put upon us, right? So I would practice before staff meetings what I was going to say. What is my opinion? How am I going to say it? And then I would try to make sure I spoke up early in the meeting because the longer the meeting went, the more I'd get scared or the more somebody might say my point, then I don't know what I'm doing. So I was strategic in how to support myself. And then the other piece of it was learning the hard way that I could never succeed trying to be somebody else. So I was raised a certain way. I'm Asian. These are the values that I was given. I have to win do, being me, not trying to change who this is. Because anytime I try to be something else, your compass is off. And I think you just, you're never going to succeed doing that. So I did find a way to be confident in that I am quieter, but when I speak up, it's meaningful um, and, and thoughtful. Um, and, uh, and that if I felt the need to speak up, I, I would. Anybody who knows me now would laugh at the idea that I wouldn't speak up, but that's more than a decade of, of work and some you know really tough rooms and really tough like lessons learned about what worked for me and what didn't and, and really making sure to try not to repeat the same pattern, I guess. Yeah. I want to go back to this uh, idea of leading or being the vice president, uh, executive vice president of an outfit like DC Films. Uh, the IP is very distinct because it involves superheroes, it involves uh, IP that's been around for many decades. Did you have to learn or study this going in? Uh, understanding right, right, right. the canon of, of superheroes going in? Or was it something that, oh, they just kind of follow uh, story structure, you know, Joseph Campbell, make it, transform it, and make it better than what the IP currently uh, showed? Yeah. So I did not grow up reading comics. Um, I'm not, or now I am, was not, not a DC expert. Um, so if you, if you think about it Kevin Feige for example over at Marvel he's very much I don't know exactly how many comics he was reading when he was growing up but if you look at his history before he was at Marvel he's like a film guy like he grew up in film he worked at film companies and I would say that I'm uh, a lot of us are similar of course there are plenty of people who are DC experts um, but really what drew me to superhero movies and is that it's the biggest storytelling that we do. Like in many ways, there are gods, you know, centuries and centuries ago, there are Greek gods and there are many stories about them. Like that's who superheroes are for us. I gravitate to event storytelling. Mm. I love saying something meaningful on the biggest platform that you have, which are these movies. Like I always talk about, um, I'm a football person and that's like 16 games you kind of pay more, but you show up and it's highly dramatic and important, right? You make one loss. It's really bad for your season. Baseball is repetitive, many more games. It's kind of more about data and numbers, right? So, so superhero filmmaking was always a draw for me because of the size of it. 
and and how uh, escapist it was and in many ways aspirational. Those are all things that I really love. It's Those are why I go to the movies. I really love to provide that escape. Um, and so I came to DC not being an expert, but knowing that I could bring my film enter my film experience and expertise to the IP that is DC. And a lot of us do this, like whether or not you work at DC, the executives who are running Barbie or Harry Potter are taking known IP and bringing, um, you know, film or television storytelling to it. So that's, that's how, that's my approach. And that's how I came into this. Well, there's a lot of catch up reading. This episode is brought to you by Songkai Distillery, my only go-to gin company. Established in 2018, Songkai Distillery is Vietnam's first gin distillery founded by Daniel Nguyen, a Vietnamese American from Southern California. No matter how many people I have at my parties, we are always pouring Songkai gin. Songkai gin is handcrafted in small batches and prioritizes using botanicals and ingredients that are native and heirloom to Vietnam. The result is a product uniquely Vietnamese in taste and aroma. Songkai is now growing to include rice wine and traditional Vietnamese herbal liqueurs similar to Amaro. Songkai prides itself in Vietnam from the farmers who grow the fruits and herbs to the artists behind the artwork and design. Songkai is a community effort of people who are proud to be Vietnamese and collectively embody the spirit of Vietnam. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you did you come up more on the story side or on production number side? Story side. So yeah. it's more of a development background that you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I could go back in time, I would have been an English major in college. I think that would have been uh, really great as far as what my job is now. But yes, it is. It is all about uh, recognizing stories, developing stories with writers. Um, and always, even as you're making the the film or the show, you have the creative eye. You always have to reconcile it with the money. And I think a good creative does that. But your eye is on the characters and the, and the story and if it's working or not. And then how do you manage the production and the budget and the technical elements to serve the story? Your name is on about a dozen of these DC uh, films. If you look up IMDb, or any okay. of these credits, uh, there aren't a lot. And one uh, movie that stood out for me particularly was the Wonder Woman uh, film. And I wanted to use it as a case study for your participation on a film like that. How much steering, how much guidance, how much uh, of your fingerprint gets to be on a film like that? Because it's you know a female-driven uh, superhero. I, yeah. I'm curious to know your involvement in something like that. Yeah. Um, so I worked, just to be clear, I worked on Wonder Woman 1984, not the first Wonder Woman. Right. I would have loved to work on the first Wonder Woman because I think it's one of the best movies ever. Um, so as far as, so a movie like Wonder Woman 1984 is an interesting example to use because by the time we were doing that movie, Patty Jenkins was Patty Jenkins, the director and frankly, the writer-director alongside um, her partners, Jeff Johns and Dave Callahan. They're, they're a kind of unit that works, right? And so my role on a movie like that, where it's a sequel to a successful movie, is to support, to give feedback, to give notes. So anytime they're turning in a treatment or a script, um, I and I, I came onto that movie very early on, pretty much as they were turning in the first script, I was there. 
And we, you know, we and my bosses, we would read it and we give our creative notes back and, and we therefore then get into the debate, right? They have this for a reason. We think it works or doesn't work for that or for other reasons. And you engage in that debate. And that is how you do influence what's on the screen. Um, I would say, and then that kind of extends into production and also into, um, post-production. So that is, I think, how you have influence. And it obviously depends filmmaker to filmmaker. When you give your notes, when you give your perspective and it's not received well, or it's received very well, either way, either on the spectrum, does that affect sort of your emotions about the job that you're doing? Does it give you more confidence? Does it give you less confidence sometimes when you're getting pushback or how does that feel as an executive? For, uh, that's personal for sure. Um, for me, it it doesn't ever affect my ego. Like, where I guess where my ego matters for me is that I really want to be giving them my best as far as what I can think of to help them. So if I ever feel like I gave a bad note or I was confusing then I can, I'll get mad at myself, right? Mm, yeah. If I feel good about the notes that I presented and they are debating me or they don't like it, then to me, it's not really about my ego. It's that I only gave the note because I really believe that it will be what could make the movie better. But what I also believe is that my note could be wrong, but the dialogue is what can make the movie better. What I care most about is making the movie as good as it can be. I always want what's on the screen to be the, the best thing that that filmmaker or writer could have put on a screen. And so, so a lot of the times I think feedback and being and pushing the talent is what allows for that. So I actually welcome the dialogue um, and it doesn't really get me down. What You know, it might get me down if I really believe that it will make the movie better, but there's so much magic in what we do that I could believe with all of my heart that this is right, but I could very well be wrong, which is why the testing process that we do where we put the movie in front of 200 people and get other opinions is really meaningful. You have to you humble yourself to the audience. They matter most. So if they end up watching it and they totally prove you're not wrong, accept that because you're, the point is to make it better. And I think the talent responds better when they understand it's not about your ego. Right. I'm very specific in how I convey notes because I don't want them to think, this is about me putting my handprint on your stuff. It is me trying to make this better from my point of view, and I'm not doing my job if I don't speak up with you. Doesn't mean you have to take every note, and doesn't mean that I'm right. But the dialogue, at the very least, should probably make the product better so no it doesn't make my it doesn't i think that and by the way good talent does push back now how much and if they can hear i think good talent is open and hears other people's opinions and then puts it through their own filter so i always want that pushback i actually worry if they're just doing everything i say because i'm not an artist i'm not writing or directing for a reason so i don't actually expect you to do everything i ask uh, I appreciate you answering that like, so candidly. And I asked that question because it's of cultural relevance uh, growing up Vietnamese mm -hmm. because that hierarchical sort of uh, 
landing space that we're in as uh, second generation Vietnamese in the United yeah. States oftentimes is clouded by the way we are raised. Uh, it, there's a lot of ego in the Vietnamese culture sometimes when it comes to this yeah. hierarchy because of the way we call it, you know, these um, honorifics that, you know, back and Jew and, and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why I was like wondering if that, because once you break free from that um, hierarchical structure and that ego attachment, it's uh, it frees you to really give honest feedback. It gives you this power to to just really punch forward and say, hey, this is what I think is good for the project. That's it. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting lens. I will say that I think I'm assuming you're in my generation. Yes. Um, that that our generation very much has that on the mind. And I find that with my cousins in my generation, I can be very direct and yeah. no one, everybody recognizes how that hierarchy is actually bad for the family dynamic or for your friendships. But we, we all have to... I don't want to say play the game because that is that's kind of condescending to what our culture is, but we have to respect what our parents value. And um, I think we behave differently with them than we do with each other, which I think is really good because moving forward, our generation is who we're going to grow up with and who we're going to um, create memories with. And as long as I have that honest dynamic with my generation, um, then uh, I I feel good and I feel hopeful. With my parents specifically, uh, I actually feel like I can be quite honest with them. And sometimes there's openness and sometimes the, they acknowledge that it's very hard for them because they grew up a certain way. And I think we have to give them grace too because we've turned their world upside down, right? So all of our worlds have been turned upside down in the last 15 years or so, if not 10 years. So um yeah, that's a but that's a really interesting way to think about it. I, yeah, I don't I don't think that has affected me. Yeah, in my work, and I I'm speaking from somebody who's gone through therapy from like 25 years old to 32. I did it for seven years, sometimes twice, three times a week because I was in such, and I was going through the agency uh, in Hollywood route, and it just it was just so jarring the kind of. Uh, pushback in my mind, the ego and how brutal it was when you have these old school agents that were just really shitting on you. Yes. <laughs> it was just a very tough thing to to sit yeah. Now, looking back, I'm like, oh my God, they, they just wanted me to get better. And the way they did it was just very different than what I was used to growing up. It was it just- depends on who it was, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. Uh, it was a different time. Yes, exactly. You, yeah. you, you, you reacted like you've gone through the same, uh, the same process as well. I've, I've witnessed it. Um, I was very clear with myself when I started in this business, I read all the books about, you know, the agency, the mailroom. Um, and I, and I knew the culture of Hollywood. And I think it's one of the things that, you know, my mom, my mother in particular was most fearful about. Um, she said at my wedding that you have to be the Lotus that rises above the mud. Right. Mm. And I knew if, there are a lot of things that I was insecure about growing up the way I did in the town that I did. But if there's one thing I knew is that I really valued being a good person and I wasn't willing to compromise that. And so from even the very beginning, my first assistant job, I knew that I was always going to choose a boss who I felt was a good person because it, because whether you want to, to happen or not as an assistant, which is how you start in Hollywood, 
you you take on some of the qualities of your boss. So you have to be smart about who you're choosing to work for because you work for them because you're learning from them. So I very early on chose good people to work for. Even if my first boss was a very junior agent who had just gotten promoted to agent, he'd been assistant six months before I started. And, you know, maybe I could have had the option to work for a more senior agent, but I wanted to work for him because I knew he was a good person. And I was never going to compromise on that. So I, I think that helped me not deal with some of the stuff that you're talking about. Weirdly, I think I deal with it more now that I see more of what happens on the upper levels of this like business. Um, so, but by and large, I think if you look at most of the people I've worked for, they've been really good people. Some of it I've had, I could choose because as an assistant, you choose. As a junior executive or an executive, you have questionable choice. Your choice is to stay or to leave. <laughs> <laughs> there are hundreds of young Vietnamese uh, people now, professionals in Hollywood. Uh, they're working over at UTA, CAA, ICM, all of these uh, agencies and production companies. What is different now? Um, has it truly improved as a result of box office success with Crazy Rich Asians or... Um, does it really just boil down to how smart and talented and hardworking you are? It's mm, a good question. So I think it has improved. I think it's definitely gotten better in that every company now sees the value of diversity. Um, I think they see it at, at different places on the spectrum, right? But no matter what, I think that we have more opportunity than we did before because there is clear um, contributions that we can make. Um, I think what's still hard is that I do think microaggressions still are very, very much still here. So as much as a company can say that they mean this, under, under the surface, there's still things that are happening that are not uh, progress. But I do think on the whole, we've made progress on screen, behind the screen. Um, so I'm very happy about um, that. Um, and then, well, there was a second part to your question. You said, has uh, it gotten it, better? Uh, and, then, and then is it about hard work, grit, determination, brilliance? Uh, uh, yes. I still, think it, I still think it's about that because in many ways, the business is harder. It's more diverse. But it, in the cyclical world that is our business, we are now on the downslope, right? Uh, everybody's consolidating, companies are merging. People don't know how to make heads or tails of the streaming business and how to make money off of it. That means uh, jobs are cut, et cetera. So I do think it, it still takes grit and determination because it's a hard, it's still a hard business. It's a business where, you can't like show an Excel grid and say like, this is my work and these are my skills. It's still, the skills are very hard to define. You kind of just know it when you're in the room with somebody or yeah. you know it when you hear their thoughts on something. So I do think that it's still going to be about how many movies you watch or shows you've watched and knowing the writers, not only because, um, it's always been about that, but more so now because it's a tougher business and there are fewer jobs and you've got to compete. And 
um, no matter what, there's still a lot of people who want to be in this business. You can quit your job and somebody else is going to step right in. And I think, more, but more what I'm finding is that it's grit, it's determination, it's hard work, but it's also the emotional resilience that you have. How much do you love this? How much are you willing to take? No matter what, it is a tough business emotionally and psychologically. It's a business that value can value you one day and throw you out the next day, right? It's very feast or famine. There are people who are getting paid absurd amount of money and there are people who are barely surviving, right? So, and that's in every, I think that's across the board, whether you're a writer, director, executive, et cetera. Like it's, it's, it's becoming harder and harder. So how you balance your life, how you make sure that your sense of self is rooted in who you are, not in what the business gives you. Cause it can't, the light shines so brightly, you know, you've got a hit movie and everybody's calling you and you've done this like, but how long does that last? Like your, your, your happiness can't come from that. So I actually think that's one of the bigger uh, pieces of, of whether you last or not, because there are plenty of people who are smart, but either can't navigate the game or get very exasperated by the egos and yeah. how tough the business is that they just decide to leave anyway. Right. And that's just about, that's, you know, who you are emotionally and how much you love this. Not, and you can, it's not exactly tied to how hard you work. Oh, that's very true. The emotional aspect of it, uh, it, it, it will drain you uh, if you are not uh, well-versed in how to protect that. Yeah. Yeah. And it can go away. And a lot of people understand this. It can go away so quickly. Yeah. Um, and, and part of that is just defined by what this business is, <laughs> right? It's like who you are on screen and if people still care about you, or if you still have what it took to write that or shoot that, right? Like if you, the second you don't have it, there's not a ton of uh, netting. Right. Yeah. Wow. We can go on forever about that. But uh, let's switch over. Have you been to Vietnam? Yes. What, what, when did you go the first time? Oh, I don't remember what year it was, but I think it was around 30 years after my parents had left. So, uh, so maybe two, 2002 or 2003, around there. Oh, okay. So you're, you're fairly young at the time. Yes. But not young where you couldn't remember. And, and have no, you... no, no, no. I was I, I was in college or graduating from college yeah. or yes, yeah, around there. And and have you been back recently? No. Oh, that was your only was the only trip. Trying to remember if I went back. My family has gone back. My sister has gone back. But I think that was the last time I was uh, there. Yeah. And do you ever have any sort of um, inclination to get involved with any of the storytelling or the industry in Vietnam as far as filmmaking? You know, I honestly haven't because my job is all consuming, whether it's been at DC or at Warner Brothers before I was at DC. I am, and my family will tell you, I'm reading all the time, reading books, scripts, talking to people, taking meetings, writing notes, watching movies. And so the way I think about it is, you know, progress can be made by me doing my job as well. Like I'm a little stretched too thin and it's a very different business. I'd rather be an expert in what I do and um, then kind of stretch myself too thin. I mean, there's the other thing that my job tells me to do this job 
<laughs> and so I can't really do other things. Um, but yeah, I, ha I have stayed focused mainly on what I'm doing here. And I'm, I'm obviously aware of Vietnamese filmmakers. I've watched those films. Um, um, the number of people who sent me the sympathizer was <laughs> countless, but it's not, it's not my, uh, world as far as what I do. Um, so yeah. Are you open to sharing where you see yourself, uh, ultimately where, where, where do you want to land? You know, um, I'm happy to accept that I don't really have a vision for it. The last few years, so I'm on my, I think it's my sixth regime at Warner Brothers. Um, I started here at, at Warner Brothers in 2010, and I've seen so many chairman and CEO and, and presidents of production and colleagues leave um, at, at, a, at a very heightened rate that that plus the pandemic plus the state of the business right now, which is not great, has kind of shown me that there isn't a ton of value in planning. Oh, wow. uh, but the, although I would say the biggest lesson is having my children, like my two children have shown me that like, I can't plan. Like there's no way to, there's no, they always, there's no guidebook for, there are many guidebooks for parenting, but there isn't one for your specific child. Right. Yeah. So I've actually learned to let go a lot and to not, I don't really have a vision for what uh, is the future. What I care about is that my family is happy and healthy, that I'm present as a mother to my children and a wife to my husband and of course a daughter to my parents and a sister to my sister and a cousin to my cousins but I will say my focus is my husband and my children and so a lot of my attention is not know I know what I'm going to be doing for the next year beyond that I don't know what I'm going to be doing because movies this movie could work this movie could show up this movie could go away this company could go this way you just don't you just don't know but so I kind of know what I'm doing for the next year and as far as the long term, my eyes on how do I reconcile the increased requirements of my job with uh, being a mother and a and a wife, like how to because I love my job, I love my work, I also very much love being a mother to my children. I do feel like being their mother is my life's purpose, but sometimes they're at odds. So like, how do you make that work? So I that's kind of what's going to define my future the most. Chantal, I thank you so much for just being so open with me. Um, I, I didn't want to um, talk more. I did not want to get into the mechanics of, of movie making and all that. I, I really wanted to come here to get to know who you were uh, on a personal level. And I feel like you've done so much more beyond that in, in conversation with me today. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for reaching out. This was so lovely and it was so... Um... Just nice to hear your questions and, and how you're thinking about things because um, I've always known that I'm one of the only Vietnamese executives in town. There are, there are others, there's a, you know, Dan Tram over at Fox, she's amazing. Um, so, but it's, and my journey has been so rooted in being Asian, but in a way that I think not a lot of people see, like no one really listen, like, 
not a ton of attention is paid to what our journey is. That's my candid thought. Yeah. Um, so it's nice to just sit here and talk to you and hear what you're thinking about and the lens that you're looking through as far as what I do. Um, it's, it's just, it's nice. I really well, appreciate what you're doing with this podcast. Thank you for the kind. It's an honor, by the way. I've seen, I've seen some of your other guests, and I was like, "Oh, he wants to talk to me." Okay. <laughs> we are very proud to have somebody like you in your position and what you've accomplished. So, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Chantal. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Wynn. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.